Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Washington, D.C. is Dan Kahn. Dan is a partner at Davis Polk. He's a former member of the senior leadership team at the Department of Justice and co-author of the book Corporate Criminal Investigations and Prosecutions in the Aspen Casebook series. Uh, Dan, first, thanks for taking the time to talk to us again today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Adam. Glad to have you and glad you can cast light on something that's been getting a lot of attention. Some saying it's a big deal, some saying it's not. And what I'm referring to is Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's uh, recent talk in which she outlined changes in DOJ policy when it comes to white collar crime. Uh, Maybe it would be good if we began by you just giving us a quick summary of what were some of the key changes that she cited. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think um, I, I've heard the same thing you have, that a lot of people are describing it as uh, a big deal. And a lot of people, uh, on the other hand, describing it as, as not changing the dynamics at all. And, and I guess to give a good lawyerly answer, I would say that it, it does fall somewhere in between. Um, and and I, I think um, that, you know, there's still some additional guidance that has yet to come out um, that she forecasted. So I think some of it is wait and see. Some of it is actually pretty significant. Um, and some of it is, is more of the same. So um, I think just to, to give an overview of, of what the changes were, um, you know, number one is individual accountability. And, and no surprise, um, the department reiterated that individual accountability is their number one priority. Um, I think what is new in, in this new guidance um, are two things uh, on, the, on this front. One is um, the notion that uh, a cooperating company who is looking to get cooperation credit, when they come across new evidence that is considered "quote unquote" hot, um, that they're expected to turn that over immediately. And I think the the deputy attorney general during her speech used the phrase, um, "the first call should be to the prosecutors." Now, as a practical matter, that is really really difficult and unlikely um, to to really be good for anyone. So mm-hmm. I think that number one. And number two, um, there was also the announcement that individual prosecutions are now expected prior to or at the same time as as the corporate resolution, which again um, is, is new, not something that, that we had heard announced before. And I think there's, we can, and we can delve into it in a little bit. Um, you know, I think there are some interesting uh, consequences of that. Um, The second piece of the guidance was uh, on prior misconduct. And this is something where a year ago, um, the DAG in her speech at the ABA White Collar Conference back in October 2021 really came out with some harsh rhetoric for for, um, repeat offenders. And this was a step in the right direction. Um, the, The new guidance provided a much more nuanced approach to prior misconduct, um, saying that not all prior misconduct is created equal, um, that there would be various factors that the department would look at in determining whether and how to weigh prior misconduct. Um, that said, there is still the, the disfavoring of successive NPAs or DPAs, suggesting that a company who had a prior NPA or DPA uh, would be much more likely to get a, a guilty plea. Um, the third piece of the, of the guidance um, was with respect to monitors. Uh, and I, I think this is one that is significant and, and frankly was um, all in all a positive for companies uh, because basically what it said was um, 
DOJ is going to be monitoring the monitors. Um, they laid out a list of 10 non-exhaustive factors that prosecutors will, will look at and consider in determining whether or not a monitor is appropriate. And I think they were all, um, you know, on the whole positive factors. Um, and in addition to that, the DAG uh, really course corrected from, from last October when she said that there was going to be, um, or I should say that there was not going to be a presumption against monitors, which I think a lot of folks took to mean that there were going to be more monitors. And so she, she made clear that although there's not going to be a presumption against monitors, there's also not going to be a, a presumption in favor of monitors. So I think all in all, the monitor piece of it was, was very positive. Um, the, the, fourth, the fourth piece of the guide, is, and I know there's a lot to cover here, but there really was a lot in the DAG speech, um, is voluntary disclosures. And, and the DAG said that um, the, the department writ large now is going to have to have uh, a policy on voluntary disclosures. And to the extent a component doesn't already have one, um, they're going to have to draft one. And minimum requirements are going to be that absent aggravating circumstances, there be a presumption against a guilty plea um, if the company voluntarily self-discloses, cooperates, and remedies. Again, we can we can talk about um, how significant a carrot or, or non-significant a carrot uh, that really is. Um, but but that was another piece of it. And then the the final piece was on compliance programs, and um, the DAG cited favorably to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that the criminal division came out with a few years back, um, and and added three additional ones that uh, or factors that that prosecutors will look at, and announced that the criminal division would be coming out with new guidance on those in the next few months, and that's um, on ephemeral messaging and personal devices. Um, it's on financial incentives for compliance, um, including clawbacks, and it's uh, on the use of non-disparagement clauses in employment agreements that uh, could be used to stifle whistleblowers. So I know that was a, a lot to kick it all off, but but that's really the level set the the new guidance. So there's a lot there, and and one of the things is you were going through this. I was thinking about I, as we're recording this. I've been in Singapore last week and talking to people in the compliance community and the fraud community there. And one of the things that they've noticed um, or, or they believe they've seen is a slowdown in white collar prosecutions in general. And they've said in sort of in the market, it's been harder to get focus on compliance programs because of that. Is that a reality? Is that a perception? Is it reflect the fact that maybe the DOJ is starting to shift focus and as it does so, there's a bit of a pause and that there's a huge tidal wave potentially coming. Um, what do you think based on what you're seeing and what you just heard from the DAG? Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's actually interesting because I think baked into this new guidance and in, in some of the language in the speech was the premise that white collar prosecutions, white collar enforcement has been down over the past few years. And I, I think that is, is not really the reality. Um, I, I think that there have been uh, you know, over the course of, of the Obama administration and the Trump administration, for example, in the fraud section, which is where I was, um, you know, corporate enforcement continued on, on the uptick um, over the over the past eight years up, leading up to this administration. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, there, number one, there has been a lot of corporate enforcement. Um, and number two, I think it overlooks the possibility that 
based on all of the enforcement, based on the additional guidance, based on what has been going on um, in, by the by the regulators, that, that companies are in fact becoming more compliant, uh, and that there there may actually be uh, greater efforts to curb corporate crime. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's that's one piece of it. I think the other piece of it is is there has been some some thoughts that in the new administration, despite the rhetoric about um, stepping up enforcement, that actually there hasn't been as much. Um, and I think part of that is anytime a new administration comes in, there's always a little bit of a, of a you know, delay in, in, um, in actually seeing the effects um, to the extent that new resources are going to be added at some point. And, and we keep hearing that from, from DOJ. We, we still haven't seen it, but we keep hearing it. To the extent that that happens, there may be some lag in that. And then once that does happen, there's often some additional lag in actually seeing the effects of that. So I just wouldn't put too much stock in, in this notion that corporate enforcement is down um, as a general matter, either over the last administration or this one, because um, the, the prosecutors who are actually doing these cases are career prosecutors, and they uh, continue to do their jobs regardless of, of what administration is in place. And, and really the question is, whether or not they're getting additional resources to do those jobs. Okay, good to know. Now, we've heard from the DOJ for some time now that they are increasing their focus on individuals. You know, So what you just outlined is in many ways a continuation of that. Does her talk, though, give us something you know, qualitatively or quantitatively new? I think it does. Um, and, and again, it's not clear how this is going to play out, but the, the fact that the, the deputy attorney general is saying, number one, not just to companies, but to prosecutors, you need to move more quickly. Um, and number two, saying that uh, corporate prosecutions should go forward after or at the same time as the individual prosecutions. I, I think those are significant pieces and significant announcements. Number one, I think they're in some ways inconsistent. I think if you're saying that there has to be an individual prosecution first or at the same time, that is inevitably going to slow down uh, a corporate resolution. Um, and that's because when you are preparing a case for, for indictment or, or for trial, which is what prosecutors are thinking about when they're, when they're preparing charges against individuals, that takes longer than if a company comes in and says, hey, we're willing to admit to this misconduct or, or an individual for that matter. If an individual is willing to plead guilty, it, it goes more quickly. Um, and because there, there are just things that the prosecutors need to do to get ready for a case to go to trial um, within the speedy trial period after indictment um, that, that they just wouldn't have to do if someone is pleading guilty or if a company is entering into a resolution. So I think it, it may have that that impact. And and I also think it, it certainly, I think, from, from my perspective, a good thing to say, we want these cases to move more quickly. Um, no one wants cases to drag on for years. And, and certainly, um, I think it's, it's beneficial to, to have things resolved more quickly. But these are complicated cases. These are cases where um, there's evidence overseas. There's cases where, um, you know, there's very complicated issues of, of law and fact. And so, the notion of, of moving more quickly is great in the abstract, but again, it, it just can't be at the expense of, of making mistakes or, or rushing things that, that really deserve a lot of, of time and attention. 
which you know you want the prosecutors to take the time to do it right and also because it's going to be fair that way but let me ask a question as a non-lawyer that um maybe a, a dopey question or maybe a good one you'll tell me hopefully politely um <laughs> but um by going after individuals more, does it change the complexion too in that, you know, with executives now separated from the company in terms of having their own separate prosecution, does that potentially pit one against the other to a, a degree that we haven't seen before and add to higher likelihood of, of more difficulties for both sides? Yeah, and look, this, this has been, it, it's, it's not a dumb question, it's a good question. And it's, it's one that I think um, really has, has been percolating for a while now. Uh, and it was one that, that really, I think, was a focus after the Yates memo um, during the Obama administration when, when there was this notion of um, a company only being eligible for, for cooperation credit if they provided all evidence related to all individuals um, engaged in the misconduct. And so I think there, there inevitably is tension um, between the individuals who work at the company who, who have potentially engaged in misconduct um, and, and the company. I think what's new is, is the, the department's focus on um, compensation and clawbacks because really what's, what's being talked about there is, is yet another way that uh, really a company would be pitted against individuals and not necessarily just individuals who engaged in misconduct, but, but the import, I think, of the DAG speech is to the extent that there was an individual um, at the company who failed to effectively supervise, who didn't themselves engage in misconduct, but according to the department, contributed to the misconduct, um, would, would be the type of person that DOJ will be asking about and, and asking whether the company clawed back compensation or, or penalized them somehow financially. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because, you know, obviously when people start seeing not just their job at stake, but past income at stake, um, it can be a chilling proposition. Now, er earlier you mentioned the area of not giving credit for compliance to organizations that are repeat offenders. Um, let's talk about that restriction because it is a complex area. Um, you know, there's a difference between an organization that's been brought up, say, three times on the exact same charge versus one where, you know, a small unit and company in, in a small country had one violation, you know, a unit in another country had a totally different one going on there. And, you know, it's an issue that, you know, at one point the DOJ was floating a concept where it would seem like all of that would count against the company which seems unfair given that, you know, if you've got a company of half a million people and operations all over the world, you know, wherever there's people, there's problems and inevitably there's going to be issues. Um, you were made good enough to make us a part of the process that argue the point with the DAG. Um, are we seeing, it sounds like we're seeing a more rational approach that does make sense and reflect the realities of a complex business. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely true, and I think that one of the one of the positives um, that that came out of this process was the the department um, and the DAG met with stakeholders, um, including yourself, and and heard out um, the the various arguments um, on on these issues, and and really seemed to to take them to heart. And uh, I think the the guidance changed as a result, and so 
what you have is the DAG's recognition that not all misconduct or prior misconduct is created equal. Um, look, to your point, it's really, really hard if you're a multinational company with, with thousands or tens of thousands of employees um, spread out all over the world to prevent someone from circumventing the controls and the policies and, and engaging in misconduct. Um, and so the, the initial comment by, by the Deputy Attorney General last October that, that they were seeking to harmonize the way that individuals and companies um, were treated when it comes to prior misconduct, I think really missed the mark because of that. Because if you're an individual who has robbed three banks over the course of 10 years, you know, I think it's hard to argue you're not a career criminal. Whereas if you're a company and you've had three employees over the course of 10 years spread out over various parts of, of the world, engaged in different types of misconduct, I think you're a pretty compliant company and you're doing really well. Uh, and so that, that really seemed to, to not be the focus of the DAG speech last October. And it, it really seemed to be something that was taken into account within guidance. And so the, the factors that the department are going to be looking at is whether the prior misconduct was by the same individuals or was caused by the same circumvention of, of similar controls, um, whether it was caused by the same root causes. Um, those are the types of things that, that I think make sense. Um, you know, whether the misconduct occurred in the same locations, whether it was a, a U.S. violation of law, um, and how dated is it? Uh, and the recognition that if, if there's, according to the DAG, misconduct that occurred more than 10 years old that was criminal or more than five years old that was civil, that that would be weighted less heavily against the company. Um, that if there's a, a no admit nor deny, uh, no admit, no deny prior resolution, that that would count less heavily against the company than one where the, um, the company admitted to misconduct. So all I think positive things. And, and I think that the only piece that was, was really concerning coming out of this speech was still this, this notion that uh, a company that uh, has had a prior NPA or DPA would, would be far less likely to get one for a second time. And I think um, that, again, just, just really overemphasizes the import of prior misconduct over the other nine uh, principles of prosecution of business organizations. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, one of the things that as you were talking earlier struck me was the issue of voluntary disclosures and the importance of them and the presumptions that came with it. It seems to me this is a good tool, a, a strong validation for compliance programs um, and taking the time to understand your risks, to identify problems early and come forward with them and would be good leverage for a compliance officer uh, who's up against a resistant management or a general counsel who's like, I don't want to know what my problems are because then I don't have to deal with them. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, so, so there's no doubt that having a good compliance program does a couple things. And so, so one is it helps prevent misconduct to begin with, which is obviously really important, especially with how harsh the department is, is treating um, violators these days. Um, I think the second thing it does is to the extent there is misconduct, if it catches it, um, it, it can mitigate how significant it is. And so you may go from, from having a type of misconduct that is, you know, years in duration and 
much bigger and more significant to something much smaller and 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 frankly something that the department may not be interested in or would be it would be more easy to convince them to go to be more lenient on you um, but the the third piece which is what you're getting at is if you can detect it then you can disclose it and and I think that's absolutely true I think the question continues to be is it in the company's best interest to voluntarily disclose misconduct that it finds and does this new guidance move the needle and I think it would be hard to say that the new guidance moves the needle and, and the reason that I say that is really two reasons one um, you have to look at it in the context of the other pieces of the guidance so on the one hand there may be this this perceived carrot of voluntary disclosure credit but if you're going to be judged more harshly for cooperation credit, which we talked about, and if you're more likely to get a harsher resolution, if you're a recidivist or you had prior misconduct, which we've already talked about, then it makes it much less likely that you'd be willing to disclose. Um, I think the other piece of it is what the, the baseline is, what the requirement of this department-wide voluntary disclosure program isn't that big a carrot to begin with. And so if you look at the, the established programs that are already in place, antitrust, for example, that has the leniency program. So essentially, the company gets off um, entirely, uh, or the FCPA, um, which is applied in the fraud section, which says that if you voluntarily self-disclose, fully cooperate, and fully remediate, there's a presumption of a declination, meaning you're not going to have a, a criminal resolution. Now, juxtapose that with with this new department-wide program, which says absent aggravating circumstances, um, you won't get a guilty plea. Well, not getting a guilty plea doesn't seem like that big a carrot, particularly when it's caveated with absent aggravating circumstances. I think historically, there really wouldn't be a, a guilty plea by a corporation unless there were aggravating circumstances. Um, so, so I think that is just something that companies need to look at very, very carefully and closely um, when they're deciding whether or not to voluntarily self-disclose. Hmm. Complex calculations. So what's next? Uh, you talked about some additional direction for the guidance. Is, is there a new guidance likely to come out of the DOJ? Uh, are, are there other things that we all should be watching for? Yeah, so so there's, there's definitely going to be more guidance that comes out. Um, the DAG has already said that the criminal division is going to come out with new compliance guidance on Personal, personal devices and messaging apps and, and financial incentives and clawbacks um, within the next few months. So I think that's one thing to look out for. The other thing to look out for, we were just talking about the voluntary disclosure program. Uh, the DAG has instructed any component that doesn't currently have one, and that's most components of the department, um, that they need to, to have a written policy. So we have to wait and see what that looks like. And so all of, all of these things I think are gonna be important um, to, to wait and see what they look like. Um, but I also think we really need to see how this all plays out in practice as well. Um, the, whether or not the, the Deputy Attorney General's comment about um, prosecutors needing to be the first call that a company makes when they, when they turn over and, and come up with new evidence and hot documents, I think it's gonna be important to see whether or not that's treated literally, um, or if, if there is some understanding that companies uh, have really an obligation to themselves, to their shareholders, and, and frankly, it's in the department's interest as well if if the company does a little due diligence 
uh, to understand what evidence that they're coming up with before they just pick up the phone and call the prosecutors and potentially send the department down a rabbit hole without really even understanding what the evidence is. Yeah, which you, you don't want to do. And by the same token, yeah, I can see that in practice, you know, companies get too trigger happy, then, you know, that's just going to make things more chaotic. So speaking of, you know, you mentioned the phrase play, let's see how it plays out in practice. Um, unfortunately, compliance people can't wait until it plays out in practice, you have to do something. So let me wrap this up by asking if you could give compliance teams one piece of advice based on the DAG's comments, what would it be? Yeah, and, and I'm going to cheat a little bit and, and um, give multiple part answers to this because I don't think it's just <laughs> one specific thing. Um, but I do think that there's a lot in there for, for compliance officers to take away and, and, and take some guidance on. And, and I think, you know, the message is, is pretty loud and clear at this point that the department wants companies to have policies relating to personal devices and messaging apps. Um, I don't think the department or, or any regulatory body at this point really has an answer as to what specifically those policies should be and, and how to actually carry them out. And I think there's a lot uh, of complications around uh, personal devices and messaging apps, um, including privacy issues, you know, retention issues, how can cost issues, uh, how can you actually monitor someone's personal phone especially when um, you have work issued devices. So, so they, you know, theoretically shouldn't even be using their personal devices for work. So, you know, th there's all sorts of issues with it, but I think having policies in place um, that address retention of, of all business communications, including those that take place on messaging apps um, or personal devices is important. Um, and then financial incentives. And again, I think the clawback piece can also be complicated depending on, on where you operate and whether there are employment laws against clawing back compensation. Um, but I think having building in um, some aspect of financial penalties and incentives related to compliance, I think, is, is something that the department wants to see. Um, and, and although there'll be new guidance on that in a couple of months, I think it's, it's helpful to look at it now. Um, Non-disparagement clauses, we talked about that. That's something that the SEC has a regulation on. So if you're a publicly traded company, you're, you're presumably already doing this. But I think other companies can look and make sure that they include similar types of language um, to make sure that, that they're not stifling whistleblowers. Um, but I think overall, you know, looking, looking at the compliance program um, and making adjustments is is the biggest thing that that a company can do coming out of this guidance as opposed to everything else we've been talking about, about just sort of looking at it closely, you know, really carefully considering voluntary disclosures. If you are cooperating, making sure you're having frequent communications with the prosecutors to make sure that they view you as fully cooperating. Um, but But those are the main takeaways, I think. And they're complicated. I mean, on the messaging app alone, if you look at how we all communicate with each other these days, um, it may not be for nefarious reasons that somebody is communicating with someone via Facebook Messenger, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, whatever, but those are business communications that someday a prosecutor may want to see. Well, Dan, thank you for sharing all these insights into this with us. Uh, it's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens next from the department. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaub from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.